Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. The old standard oil company once offered an enormous sum of money to a highly skilled petrochemical engineer. They wanted him to come and work with them uh, on their development of oil in China. Well, the man was a missionary, and he refused their offer. And so they came to him and they said, well, we'll double the salary, but he still refused their offer. So they came back to him and they said, well, what's it going to take? How come we're not offering you enough money? There's no more that we can do. And the man said, look, the money actually isn't the issue. The job you're asking me to do is simply too small. Well, the subject that we're talking about today is world mission. Uh, the incredibly large job that Jesus gave to his church to take the message of the gospel to the whole world. Over the last several weeks, we've been reminding ourselves of our core values as a church, which is something that's good to do from time to time. We've looked firstly at our mission statement, our reason for being to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And we've been working our way through six specific values that define our priorities as a church. We've looked at authentic community, relationship with God, biblical authority, uh, evangelism, volunteerism. Last weekend, it was priority of the poor. If you want to catch up on what we've said on each of these, uh, access the podcast off our website. Well, today we're up to the last of our values that we're looking at, which we refer to as global reach. In short, as a church, we are vitally interested in what God is doing all around his world and engaging with that in whatever way we can. We're all about the gospel in our own immediate neighborhood and context, but we also look beyond our immediate backyard and support what God is doing beyond our immediate parochial district. Now, when it comes to vision disorders, for instance, there are some people who suffer from myopia or short-sightedness. And then there are some who suffer from hypermetropia or hyperopia, long-sightedness. My father, for instance, used to read the hymn book of the man in the row in front of him in church until he got corrective lenses. Well, short-sightedness and long-sightedness actually have their equivalents when it comes to vision for what God is doing in his world. And interestingly, actually, both in the church and in life, the focus can sometimes change when people get a little older. That there are those who only seem to see the mission of God in long-distance locations. They're focused and excited primarily about world mission over there. Conversely, there are those who are short-sighted and only see the point of the church's focus on our immediate backyard or our nearby context. In reality, uh, both types of vision-mission disorder need corrective lenses. Mission is both here and there. 
And if we truly want to be excited about what Jesus is excited about, then what global mission or global reach actually needs to be part of the deal. But having said that, I want to offer a response to those who sometimes question whether engagement and support of global mission is really all that important. Because some clearly are not sure it is. I mean, isn't there enough to do in our own country without thinking and supporting what happens overseas? I've told before the uh, question that was put to Liz and I by a well-meaning uncle of mine back in 1988 when we announced that we were going to be missionaries in Bangladesh. He, he wrote me a letter and he asked, aren't there enough unsaved people in our own country that you should be focusing on rather than relocating to another part of the world? Well, well in one sense, it's not an unfair question to ask. It, takes a lot of extra resources to engage in mission around the world. There are languages to be learned and cultural nuances to imbibe, and the potential risks are actually significantly more complex when it comes to taking the gospel to other parts of the world compared to across the neighborhood fence. So why is global reach important and something that we as a church need to embrace as a core value. I, I guess there are, there are lots of Bible passages that we could consider on this that offer a kind of theological underpinning. But let me start with something the Apostle Paul wrote to the first century church in the city of Rome. This is in Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And, and how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There's actually a kind of logical sequence to what Paul is saying here. In fact, it might even be like a, a marketing strategy uh, for introducing a new product onto a market that doesn't yet know it exists. Uh, let's say the product is God's offer of salvation and reconnection with himself. The product is largely unknown around the world. People don't know about God's invitation to experience forgiveness and wholeness and eternal life. If potential customers or consumers of the product are ever to hear about this good news, then, well, someone needs to tell them about it or demonstrate it. But for that to happen, uh, people who know the product need to intentionally go to or take it to those who don't know it exists. Those who take the product out to the market they need to be strategically sent and supported and encouraged in the process. So the, the, the whole idea that Christians would travel beyond their personal context in order to proclaim or, or demonstrate the gospel, that's actually as old as the New Testament church itself. I mean, take, for instance, the call on the lives of Barnabas and Saul, who I guess they're like the prototype first missionaries. They were in a prayer meeting with a, a bunch of others when they felt the Holy Spirit speak to them. 
Acts 13 verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. The whole second half of the book of Acts basically tells the story of their missionary journeys. And uh, they were sent out with the blessing and backing of a local church. And they actually returned and gave an account to them of what they've been doing. Well, then there are those commissioning statements that we know so well that Jesus gave to his initial followers just prior to his ascension into heaven. You've probably heard lots of powerful sermons over the years around the Great Commission text that records some of Jesus' final words to his disciples. Take Matthew's version, for instance. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Well, Actually, the the word that's translated there as nations uh, is the word ethne in the Greek language, from which we get words like ethnic or ethnicity. It didn't refer so much to nations in the, the kind of geopolitical sense that we might think of them today. People groups or ethnic language groupings might actually be a better way to understand what Jesus had in mind. Then there's Mark and Luke's rendition of the Great Commission. Mark recorded, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Uh, For Luke, he said, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So sticking with the idea of a marketing strategy, the, the product of the gospel is intended for a global market. Jesus was pretty explicit, actually, in predicting the, uh, the extent that the good news he came to proclaim. It wasn't just for local consumption. It was actually supposed to reach around the world. The message of the gospel, Jesus said, has a global reach. If we wanted a, another Uh, motivation to engage with mission around the world. Uh, It's been suggested that there's a direct correlation between our success and the whole gospel mission endeavor and the physical return of Jesus that we Christians await with enthusiasm. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uh, discusses some of the signs of the end of the age to look out for. And in verse 14, he says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Apparently, the return of Jesus actually awaits the effective completion of the marketing enterprise that Jesus left with his followers. He seems to indicate that it won't happen until or unless the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed um, amongst all the nations or people groups around the world. The Apostle Peter actually wrote in a similar vein about those who uh, scoff at whether Jesus is ever going to return again. And he suggests that God waits patiently because, well, he doesn't want anyone 
to perish without having had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Well, I, I guess all of this raises the question, how well are we doing? If the Christian church has been at this task of global mission for 2,000 years, what, what's our market share to date? Well, and in many respects, we, we've come a long way. 2,000 years ago, the number of committed followers or disciples of Jesus, let's say, numbered around about 120. At least that's the number that were in that upper room when the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost. So considerable ground has certainly been made since then. I mean, let me offer you some statistics around this that, that might be helpful. Uh, the population of our world today is estimated at around 7.6 billion people. Well, within that, that global population, the, the number of people classed as Christians is estimated at around 32%, a little under one-third. Of course, that, that includes uh, broad definitions of Christians from those who are very active and dedicated to those who are more nominal and who just kind of tick the box of the census form, but they, they don't have any religious affiliation. But, but that's the number, 32%. Muslims number just under 23%, Hindus just under 14%, Buddhists around 7%, and those around the world who claim they are non-religious of any description number around 13.5%. So in, in, in one sense, the, the Christian movement has come a long way from 120 people in a backwater part of the Roman Empire to roughly 2.5 billion people who identify as Christians. Now, that's, that's pretty impressive growth. However, on the other hand, two-thirds of the world remain outside the Christian community. The gospel hasn't penetrated their lives or their worldview at all. Of course, some of those people who uh, particularly in Western countries like ours, might be not Christians today, but they've clearly had the opportunity to become so. But for whatever reason, they chose not to. But there are other ways of breaking down the world population and the potential for the gospel to penetrate the non-Christian market. What about those parts of the world that have never yet heard the good news of Jesus. The people that I guess Paul spoke about in Romans 10 who cannot call on the name of the Lord to be saved because, well, they haven't heard about him and they haven't heard about him because no one has gone to tell them and no one's gone to tell them because they haven't been sent by anybody. Well, well, missiologists today suggest that there are around 16,500 distinct people groups, ethne, in our world. That these might be defined by language groups or uh, distinct cultures, common worldviews, religious persuasions, that sort of thing. And those who, who study world mission have suggested that three categories that these 16,500 people groups fall into. That there are unreached people groups, there are unevangelized people groups, and there are reached people groups. Now, these kinds of qualifications, they're a fairly blunt instrument, right? But they, they do paint a bit of a picture. 
reached people groups uh, in, I guess, countries like ours, where the majority of people self-identify as Christian and where there is a viable evangelistic Christian church that's greater than 2% of the population. That there are roughly 7,000 reached people groups and that number's about 42% of the world's population or 3.5 billion people. Unevangelized people groups are those who are defined as places where there's a small minority of Christians, but their evangelical presence actually numbers in excess of 2% of the population. In other words, the, the, the gospel is established amongst them, and there is a viable network of churches seeking to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Well, there are roughly 2,800 of these people groups around the world. Again, roughly 11% of the world's population or 764 million people. Unreached people groups, well, they number around 6,700 and they contain roughly 42% of the world's population or 3.1 billion people. These are communities and, and cultures and language groups where the Christian church is either non-existent or it's way less than 2% of the population. Most people living within these people groups have no or little idea about Jesus and the message of the gospel. Christianity is a totally foreign concept and, well, spiritual darkness prevails. So, so where are these unreached or least evangelized people groups to be found. Uh, again, this is a fairly blunt instrument for classification, but missiologists tell us that the greatest concentration are found in a kind of a narrow corridor on the world map called the 1040 window, a stretch of land from West Africa to East Africa in between 10 and 40 degrees latitude north of the equator. This window on the map covers almost one-third of the entire Earth's landmass, wherein around 4.89 billion people live, roughly 64% of the world's population. However, within this geographical window are found 5,600 unreached people groups, approximately 40% of the world's population. Of the 50 least evangelized countries in the world, 97% of the populations of those countries lie within the 1040 window. The three largest non-Christian religious blocs are centered on this corridor of land, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Now, within the 1040 window live the world's poorest of the poor, around 3 billion people, roughly 40% of the world's population, who live on, get this, less than $2 US dollars per person per day. So coming back to the mission that Jesus gave to his church, you'd think, right, that the greatest concentration today of marketing of the gospel would be in and around these unreached people groups of the 1040 window. That's where the least traction has happened and where there's more work to be done. Well, sadly, that's actually far from the case. This might be a bit of a shock to you, that there are estimated to be around 400,000 foreign missionaries working around the world today. 
that these are people who have geographically relocated from one country to another in order to advance the message and the culture of God's kingdom. Of that 400,000, over 309,000 of them, that's 77.3%, operate within the reached parts of the world. 77,600, or 19.4% of this global mission force, work in unevangelized parts of the world where there actually is a viable and an evangelistic presence that's already established. And that leaves a massive 13,300 foreign missionaries, only 3.3% of the foreign missionary force, who work and operate in unreached parts of the world where the greatest concentration of people live who have never had any exposure to the good news of Jesus. I remember hearing a statistic some years ago uh, about the, uh, that suggested that about 5.7% of the world's population speak English as their first language. Now, many others speak English very competently, but this is the number uh, for whom English is actually their, their mother tongue or their first language. However, it's estimated that around 94% of ordained preachers work amongst that 5 to 7% of the world's population who speak English as their first language. Only 6% of the theologically trained pastors and preachers are deployed amongst the remaining 93 to 95% of the world's population who don't speak English as their mother tongue. Well, it actually gets worse. When it comes to where and how Christian giving dollars are deployed around the world, the picture does not look particularly pretty. According to one set of statistics, giving to any type of Christian cause, whether it's you know, world mission or local, worldwide, it's estimated to be around 70 billion US dollars a year. Giving to overseas mission causes is said to be 6.4% of those donated dollars, which is interestingly roughly equivalent to uh, how much Americans tend to spend on dieting programs, just as an aside. But when it comes to funding mission causes, approximately 2.1 billion US dollars, that's 3%, goes to mission in the unevangelized parts of the world where there is a viable church already. Only 450 million US dollars is deployed in mission enterprise amongst the unreached parts of the world. The remainder is deployed or spent or invested amongst rich parts of the world. In other words, in countries like ours. So what do all these statistics tell us about the mission of Jesus to which his followers are called? I don't for a moment think you're going to remember all of these stats. But perhaps the first thing to note is that there is still a way to go to see the mission of Jesus completed as a precursor to the return of Jesus. We may have come a long way, but there's still a very long way to go. Maybe a second thing 
they tell us is that there's a rather serious imbalance in the deployment of personnel and financial resources when it comes to God's mission to save every people group in our world. Now, God has entrusted to us his means and the message of the gospel. And when Jesus does return, there's, I think, going to be a reckoning, right? A, a, an accounting for how we have used what he left us in charge of. Perhaps a third thing that we need to note is that, well, we need to do something about all of this. We need to become world Christians and to adopt a genuine worldview when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We may not recall all of these statistics, but we can remember that the reach of the good news is worldwide. Not just the minute part of it that we live in. I mean, in fact, there's a saying that I've actually used many times over the years, the light that shines the farthest will be brightest at its source. In other words, when we engage with what God is doing all around his world, it's amazing how the particular part of it that we live and, and serve amongst is actually blessed and prospered all the more. Maybe a fourth thing that we could do is to dare to ask God where he wants us to serve. Now, th this is a bit of a risky thing to pray, but, well, I, I dare us to ask. Uh, statistically, most of us will probably not be directed by God to relocate in world mission. But there may be some who are. As Paul said, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Perhaps a fifth thing that we could do is to diligently pray and give to the cause of world mission. And I put those two things together because the best way to be motivated in praying for global mission is to start supporting it financially. And when you start supporting it financially, it actually becomes a joy to prayerfully uphold those causes. And we need to Pray the prayer that Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, that the Father will thrust his laborers out into the harvest field. And well, as they go out, we need to bear them up continually before the throne of grace and resource them. A story to close. During World War II, a church in Strasbourg in Germany was destroyed by bombs dropped by Allied forces with the exception of a statue of Christ that stood beside the altar. It was almost completely unharmed, except that the hands of the statue were broken off. Well, after the war, when the church was rebuilt, a famous sculptor offered to make new hands for the statue. But after some consideration, the members of the church decided that they wanted the statue to remain as it was, without hands. They said, Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work on earth. If we don't feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, entertain the stranger, visit the imprisoned and clothe the naked, then who will? Thanks for joining us this week online. Come join us on Sunday mornings too if you're in Hamilton. 
find out more about Hamilton Central Baptist Church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz. Join us again next week at Central Speaks.